Good morning, and thank you for this opportunity to be here with you. I know a few, and uh, I'm grateful for this time to be together. Uh, my name is David Bell Isle, and I'm one of the pastors at Parkwood Baptist Church, and my ministry there is in pastoral care. Um, but it's a privilege to be here with you all. I've known the Little Johns for a number of years now, and uh, grateful for this opportunity to be here with you. Um, I've got a few things on my heart even as we get started here and uh, uh, one of the things I do want to say is just give you a little bit of an idea of who I am uh, for those who don't know me. Uh, my wife and I were workers in West Africa for over 20 years and came back to the U.S. about 16 years ago this summer it will be. And uh, we had three boys that we brought up over there. Uh, I have to tell you, the bush of Africa for boys is unbelievable. It was fabulous for them. And they're grown married with children, but they love that experience that they enjoyed together. Uh, so we have three married sons and uh, three wonderful, amazing daughters-in-law. And uh, when people ask me about grandchildren, um, sometimes I want to say, you know, like, how many do you have? My, my initial response is to be a little tempted to say not enough, but, uh, but I, we do have eight with one on the way, and uh, I often will tell people I have five on back order, but it's kind of hard to figure out how that part works, but, uh, but we are blessed uh, in wonderful ways and grateful for that. So um, that's just a little bit about ourselves. Um, my wife is uh, remarkable. Uh, she was kind of the amazing bush wife, if you will, uh, knowing how to live in a lot of <laughs> tough situations without electricity and running water and mail and communication and things like that, and through some pretty incredible experiences. Um, and so it was neat to see how the Lord used her in that, and I'm grateful for her. My heart is also on what's happening in our world today. Um, I'm torn when we come to a moment like this um, while I have sensed the Lord leading me where we're going to go here in a moment in John, um, my heart is for our brothers and sisters. There are believers, brothers and sisters in the Lord that are in a war-torn, war-ravaged moment. And um, the amazing thing, if you're seeing some of this, is they're, they're choosing to stay, to stay put, to be the hands and feet of Jesus there where they are to worship together. Uh, and one brother, I remember when he said this years ago, uh, talking about the hands and feet of Jesus, uh, don't forget what they did to his hands and feet. We, we don't always think about what that means for them to stay there. And as we get into John 17 this week and next, we're right at the verge of Jesus' own death. Um, he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. So he's calling us to a life of self-denial, but a life that is beyond this life. So that's my heart cry as we come together in this time, that we will, we will truly see what God has for us in this incredible chapter for me. I've been... Um, meditating and what, just wrestling with this chapter now for the last several months. Actually, this passage from John 13 to 17 that we'll be looking at, and you, um, you have your uh, notes there with the, the basic 
um, outline, and I hope that we'll kind of work through that pretty well, and it'll be helpful for you as we do that. I also want to remember that you have a team of 11 folks that are in Honduras right now, and we're pretty much on the same time frame, and uh, what an opportunity for them and for the Lord to minister to them, in them, through them, and to reach people, many who have not heard. I've had a few opportunities to be where they are and among those peoples. And my wife has traveled on some of those medical teams with that group. And so um, we, we have a, a very special place in our heart for what they're about this week. Um, and so just a lot going on there. So if I may, I'd like as well to pray for just a moment for where we are and what we're, what we're about to do. Join me if you will. Father in heaven, we... We quiet our hearts for this incredible opportunity that you have afforded us by your Son to come into the divine presence of the Almighty God. To come before the throne of grace, even with boldness, not because of ourselves, but because of the righteousness of your Son that is ours this day. And so we are grateful that you are on your throne. And as your word tells us, when the foundations are torn down what will the righteous do they will go on being righteous because you have declared us righteous in your presence and they will look to you who sits on your throne and you will make all things right and so we we are torn this morning for brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and Lord, we pray that somehow you will watch over them and protect them and keep them and show them your goodness and your mercy, that you will provide for their needs. And Lord, you will make your glory shine in them and out of them and through them to a world in desperate need right now. We also pray for the team. We thank you for this medical team and thank you for all those that are on it. And I just pray that this would be a remarkable moment of your Spirit going ahead of them, organizing and orchestrating all that needs to take place. And Lord, that you will do eternal things through what's happening there. And that they will come back renewed, refreshed, and overjoyed at having seen you at work in what you're doing to reach people with the gospel for the glory of your name and your kingdom. And now for us as we look at this text, it is so rich beyond measure. And we can't plumb the depths of it. But I pray in these moments we would see the glory of our God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your notes, you see there our main idea is taken straight from Scripture. It's the closing there uh, in Jude. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. It's a benediction. And uh, I, I'm one of these kind of crazy folks that enjoys words and how words come together. And um, so that word benediction, and we were French speakers in addition to our work, and uh, the word for blessing in French is bene. And of course, this comes originally from the Latin which really just means uh, in the Latin to say a good word, but it went on to take on this idea that it was to say a blessed word. And what I love about my African brothers and sisters that we know, and, and we had a wonderful conversation with one of them yesterday, um, they constantly bless you. 
It's amazing. And, and all through the phone conversation, this widow kept blessing us and our family. You know, that the Lord would bless us and keep us and cause his face to shine on us and all of these things. And, um, and she loves to say that he would do it fivefold. And she's often repeating that fivefold. And, and it's almost like there would be this limitless blessing. And one of the things that has struck me through those years that I so appreciate that I learned from them is, and I, tr- I find myself doing this pretty much anywhere and everywhere, is when I'm having a conversation with someone, don't leave that conversation without having pronounced some blessing on them. May the Lord bless you. And, it, it can, and, and really mean it from your heart. But it's, a, it's interesting how it changes my attitude about the conversation. It helps me focus on the positive things that I need to focus on and realize that God's in charge of those critical negative things that tend to rise to the top of our minds. And so uh, we want to see this idea that it's to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. God is eternal. And we know that in our head on the one hand, but I don't know about you, I can't get my head around that thought. There is no beginning, there is no end. And so as we come to John's gospel here, we want to have that as the benchmark in our mind that this is the eternal father who has sent the eternal son. And we're going to be looking in this passage of a conversation between the son and the father. And there are going to be these onlookers. And if you will, it's like you and I get to come into the room through this chapter and listen to Jesus speaking to his father of what is most important on his heart. And the reason that this is important for us to understand is Jesus knows his death is very, very imminent. In fact, if you look at John's gospel... And I'll try to keep this organized for us. But from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17, you start with the upper room where they've just gathered for the Passover, which, of course, is the first institution of the Lord's Supper, something that you'll be able to do a little later in our service if you want, if you sense the Lord leading you to do that again today. And that starts in John 13. And... From 13 to 17, which is the prayer we're going to look at, we have about five hours' time in five chapters. If you will, it's a little bit like, you know, you pull out your smartphone today and you move it over to the uh, slow motion side and you start to record and for a moment everything's in real speed and then instantly it just kind of slows down. And it's almost like that that John has done for us here in his gospel as he gets to chapter 13 and it's suddenly like we went into slow motion and for the next five chapters, only five hours of time is going to take place. And it's going to lead straight to the cross. And so we have Jesus at the height of why he came, knowing his time is really short about to turn to his father with what is most important on his heart. And John has recorded that for us to listen in 
And so I pray that we will enter into that listening in in these two weeks that, Lord willing, we will have together. So if I may, let us look there to the beginning of this passage. Um, we see there starting, if I, if I may, in John 16, verse 31, some, um, some background or, or a little bit of... Uh, uh, context, if you will, to where we are. So if I may start in John 16, 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We see here in this passage, Jesus turning to his Father. The upper room has changed. Coming out of chapter 13 where he has gathered with them and taken off his outer clothing and taken a towel and wrapped it around him and knelt down with a basin of water and washed their feet because none of them was humble enough to do it for each other. He has worked his way around this room. I would love to take you into a village, and I, I wish we had more time, but we can only take little visits here, but uh, the dusty roads going in. The smell of the African air. The people walking along and the feet are dirty and their robes are dusty and the air is hot. We had two seasons. There was hot and dry and there was hot and wet. It was anywhere from 85 to 100 degrees and it was 80% humidity and wouldn't rain or it was 100% humidity and it seemed like it wouldn't stop raining and there was five months of rain and there were seven months of dry, but um, you know, to get that feel of what that's like and you gathered together and it was important in the culture to clean people's feet when they arrived and there was no servant to do it. And what do we see? We see the servant master taking his outer robe off. You remember what's going to happen with that robe. And taking a towel and wrapping it around himself and kneeling down. And can you imagine him coming along and looking up at Judas's eyes and washing his feet, knowing what Judas is about to do? And then there's Peter, of course, looking up, looking down at Jesus. No, 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 not me. You can't do me. And that's the beginning of this context. And so we've come through all of this time and, and we see there in chapter 13 that he tells them that one of them is going to betray him and Judas takes part in the Lord's Supper and this, the devil comes to him at that moment and Jesus tells him to go and do what he needs to do. And the other disciples don't know what's happening there. 
They think he's just gone out to take care of some monetary things because that was part of his work. And Jesus talks about how troubled he is, or John tells us how troubled Jesus is there in John 13, 31. 21, I mean. And then we get to John 14, that passage that you probably have heard many, many times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions we read in the old text. In John 13, Jesus is experiencing the trouble of what he's facing so that he can come to his disciples in John 14 and say, let not your heart be troubled. I don't know where your heart is today. My heart is heavy. I think of brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Oh, but the, this same Savior would speak to their hearts. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because our citizenship is not just here. Our citizenship is in heaven. This life is just passing through, if you will. With meaning, with purpose. With the will of God on us. And yet, it's not all there is. We live for a greater place we live for an eternity in his presence. And oh, that he will sustain them in the midst of that. And so in John 17, we see a prologue in chapters 13 through 17 where Jesus is washing their feet. And we see an epilogue in chapter 17 where he's praying and speaking to his heavenly father and they overhear him praying to him. And in between, we have chapters 13 and 14, where Jesus is speaking to them about his disciples and he, how he will send the Spirit, and um, he's going to come and he's going to strengthen them. He's going to teach them all things. And in chapter 15 and 16, the disciples learn that they are to abide in Christ in order to be uh, fruitful and to multiply they're to abide in Christ and they learn about the promise that Christ will keep them through the tribulation as I just read about. And so here in chapter 17, all the disciples are there and the room has become silent. There are no more questions. There are no more dialogues going on. And we think of what they're facing here. Uh, Simon Peter is wrestling with what he's just been told. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Not me. Yes, you. But this passage for me takes on a whole new meaning when I think of Jesus saying to him what he says and then we get to chapter 17. And I can't help but think that Peter, I know he did. He reflected back on this later when years had passed even. We know that from reading First and Second Peter because Jesus says to him, but I have prayed for you. Do we ever really stop and think that when Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose again and ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father, do we ever think about what he is ever living to do? The word tells us he ever lives to intercede for you and for me. Do you think the Father listens to the Son? Oh, yes, He does. Oh, yes, He does. And we see that in this text here. And we know that He knows exactly what the Father's will is. And we know that whatever He asks of the Father, He gets. 
and he is praying for you. Do you ever wonder what he's asking the Father for you? Here's what I know. The plans he has for us are for good. They are for his glory. And they may not take you where you want to go. They may take you through some waters that you don't want to be in. But I submit to you that what we're going to see here in this chapter, chapter 17 of Jesus' prayer, he is saying, Father, this is what I want. This is what I'm asking you for. And what is it? It's that they see his glory. I hope we can explore this a little together, but... That prayer in chapter 17 sets him up for the next prayer in the garden. And what does he say? Not my will, but yours. I want to do what you want me to do. And he can say, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. He was willing to be obedient even to the cross. For the glory of his father. And so that takes us back to what this main idea is. That it's to the only God. Our savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory. Be majesty. Be dominion. Be authority. Before all time now and forevermore. It hasn't changed. In eternity past. In our present. In eternity future. All of those things are true. We are adding our voices to an ever-growing throng of people to praise him and worship him together as we began this service today. This becomes a place for the presence of the holy God among you and among us together. What an incredible picture it is for us. Now, we see here in John 17, Jesus praying, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to help with some of next week, but... um, He prays for three different people groups, if you will. And we have heard and read as we continue our study that this particular prayer is called the high priestly prayer. Not because of anything it says in it, but because of how it functions. And part of your notes take you uh, in your studies later to look at that from Leviticus. But you had what was called the Day of the Atonement. And uh, it's, it's so rich to go back there and study what's taking place as you see Israel having come out of Egypt and they're wandering around through the wilderness and they, Moses has been up on the mountain and Israel has fallen into sin and he's come down and broken the Ten Commandments there at the foot of the mountain and God brings some punishment on uh, a large amount of the Israelite people. And... Moses asks the Lord then that he might get to see the Lord's face, to see his glory, and and God tells him, no one can see my face and live. And he does something really remarkable. He says, but I will hide you in the rock next to where I am and cover you there, and I will pass by you, and as I pass by you, I will let you see all of my goodness. Now, I don't know how that settles on your heart and mind, but, you know, there's a little bit of envy in me on the one hand to think, what could it have been like for Moses to have seen that? 
But do you realize there's something already better for you and me? Because we're on this side of the cross and Jesus has died in our place. And he was the full expression of the glory of God in living flesh. The disciples lived and walked with him for three years in this ministry. And now he's praying for them. And his request here in these five verses is that God will let his father will let them see his glory. Well, the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur would pray for three circles of individuals. He would pray for himself and for his ministry, which is what we're looking at today. And next week, we'll be looking at him praying for his family and their consecration. And then his third prayer would be for the rest of the people. And we'll see that as we look at this in these two weeks together. So Jesus prays for his disciples then in that second group in verses 6 to 19. But he also prays for his disciples now in verses 20 to 26. We see here the Savior's focus on one group, those who have come to love and trust him. And so in this prayer, Jesus is praying for himself, for his disciples, and for those who will put their trust in, his, in the word that they receive from them, which is what we have even in our scriptures today. And so we see here at first in verse 1, a foretaste into Jesus' relationship with his father. Jesus says face-to-face communion with his father. And imagine being one of those 11. You don't really know what's happened with Judas, but you're so taken because you're hearing him pray in a way that you've probably never, ever heard him pray. They've asked him to teach them to pray, and we have that as what we call the Lord's Prayer, but probably better called the Disciples' Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, as you learned it in the King James. Um, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But interestingly, have you ever noticed how toward the end of that he prays, he teaches them to pray that uh, they will be protected from the evil one, deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from evil. And we'll see part of that in John 17 as well. And so we see here, Jesus has a keen awareness of the time. He says there in chapter 17, verse 1, Father the hour has come. I don't know if it's wrestle, if you ever wrestle with this. I, I, I guess it's just my mind. But when I think about God, I, I try to remind myself he's eternal. Which means he didn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. And so, if you will, he's outside of time and space. We know that he can be present everywhere. He's omnipresent, we talk about that being. He's also omniscient. We talk about how he knows everything. And we talk about his sovereignty. And we talk about a lot of important theological things. And yet here, he's talking about time. My, we, that the hour has come. I don't know if you remember in John chapter 2, you know the story, I suspect, about the wedding at, the, at Cana of Galilee. It's the very beginning of his ministry. It's the very first of the signs that John talks about. And remember his mother, she goes to him and she says, they've run out of wine. Now, this is, a, this is a huge problem at a wedding because, well, we don't have time to go into it, but maybe you studied it. And I, I know y'all did the book of John, so I'm sure Stephen did a good job on this for you. But um, what's interesting is John mentions that this is one of the signs, the first sign that displays his glory. And what we know happens is they, the stewards are sent to him and 
told, do whatever he tells you to do, and they find these large vessels and take them and fill them with water, and the next thing you know, all of that's been turned into wine. And it's the first of showing his glory. The only way I can get my head around this is this sense that the fullness of God's glory was inside the man, Jesus. Now imagine this baby born with Mary and Joseph and the glory of God was there. But it was clothed in humanity. And we didn't see it. Isaiah talks about that even as he gets to the cross. He's not one that you pay much attention to. Somehow or another, the glory of God is being hidden there, but it peeks out all through John's gospel. And we see it there in chapter 2. And it has, interestingly, has to do around food. And we see it again, and I think it's chapter 8. Um, it's, the, it's one of the feasts, and he chooses not to go up because they're already after him at that time. And they're already thinking of how they can kill him because they want to do away with his influence. This is the religious leaders. And we find that it's a time that he chooses not to go because it's, he says, my hour has not yet come. And so I encourage you, if you have some time and want to do a study, just look about the hour or the time in the Gospel of John. And I can't help but remember, as you know, that it was in the fullness of time that Jesus was born. You see, our timeless God is absolutely immersed in the time of your life. We know in Psalm 139 where he says, uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, there in the middle of that psalm that he said, the psalmist writes, you knew every one of them all the days of my life before there was one of them. Every time I think of that particular passage, I can't help but think and look around this room and think, God knew each and every one of you would be in this room at this moment, and he knew the chair you were going to sit in, because I remember you from last week, you were up here. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? God knows exactly. He says there at the beginning of that psalm, read it if you have time this afternoon, Psalm 139, you know every word on my tongue before I even pronounce it. That's a scary thought, but he knows it. That's our God, awesome and amazing and wonderful. And so his glory, if you will, is hidden inside his son. And Jesus has come to this moment where he knows what he wants at the end of his life. Oh, that these gathered here will see my glory. Have you seen his glory? Have you experienced the glory of God in your life? Have you gotten alone in that moment where you are just consumed with being in his presence and you think I don't want to leave Isaiah knew something of that in Isaiah 6 when he says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up sitting on his throne and he does something very interesting there um, he talks about one of the characteristics or the character traits of God and we know it it's holy God is holy we also know God is love and God is good and God is kind and all of these other things but have you ever thought about the fact that this is the only character trait of God that's mentioned three times in a row we don't say God is love 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 we don't say that God is just 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 but we do say that God is holy 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 
To enter into his presence and see his glory is to enter into absolute holiness. And it gives us a picture of who God is that we would not see in any other way. And Isaiah is undone. He's undone with his own person. I don't belong here. There's the one sense that he wants to stay and the other sense that says, I must get away. And that picture is portrayed for us when you go back to Israel and Moses going to the mountain and the glory of the Lord and the thunder and the lightning and what do they do? You know what, Moses, you go up there and you talk to him for us. This is scaring us to death. You see, the glory of the Lord will repel you for your sin. But as he calls you, it draws you in. You want to be closer to it. You want to be like the moth to the flame. Even though it will consume you, you know that that's where real safety is with the Lord. Is to be right there at his side. And so we see here that he has this request in verse 2. Oh my. Um, The son's request to the father, glorify your son. And the purpose of this request is very evident there in verse 2. It's so that the Son may glorify the Father. Jesus' request to be glorified, to let them see his glory, is that in return he will reflect that glory back to his Father. You know, when Jesus was on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured, the glory of Jesus hidden inside that flesh it literally began to peek out and burst out in front of them and they were overwhelmed with it. It wasn't like the glory that Moses experienced. When Moses went to see God on the mountain, his face reflected that glory. And when he came down, he wore a veil because of it. But Paul writes to us through the writings to the Corinthians that we all with unchanged face are being changed from, unveiled face are being changed from glory to glory. We, having been brought into the kingdom of God as his children, have seen his glory through Jesus, his son. And the glory of Jesus lives inside each and every one of his believers. And that glory will peek out in your life to the unsaved and to brothers and sisters. I don't know if we think about that. But it means that we are these earthen vessels that God has chosen to pour his glory into for other people, even your children, even your parents, to see his glory in you. And for those you work with, to see his glory in you. To the praise of his glory. What an incredible picture it is. Do people see God's glory in your life and mine? That's the question for me. And we see there in chapter 17, verse 3, he talks about eternal life. He says that they will see his glory and that it will be reflected back to the Father. And that the Father's gift to the Son is authority over all flesh. And it's the Father's gift to the Son of the redeemed. We don't have time to develop it today, but this idea that you are spoken of here by Jesus as the Father's gift to the Son. Have you ever realized or thought that you were chosen by the Father as a gift to His Son? 
It's unspeakable to consider. But that's how much he loved us. And so the eternal life is to know the Father, the only true God. And it's to know the Son, Jesus Christ, sent by the Father. And as we go and look at verse 4, we see that the Son's finished work on earth is to glorify the Father. And that's what is going to take place through his death and resurrection. And there in verse 5, we see the Son's request of the Father to be glorified in your own presence, the presence of the Father, to be glorified with his original glory. He had always had this glory, but when he came and lived as you and I in human flesh, that glory was hidden. It was kind of contained, but it was there. And I encourage you as you read through the Gospels to look for those moments where you see that glory unveiled. And so Jesus has come there with the disciples and he's praying about these things and we see this, this word of glory. It's the word doxa. And it's a word that we use for many different things like being orthodox or being heterodox or, being, or having a paradox. We, we talk about a doxology which is at the end of a sermon or a prayer. And it's that word that gives us this view of what it meant for God's glory. It, it originally was like an opinion of someone. But it came on to mean a well-merited praise of someone. And in the New Testament, the word doxa for glory is the same word that is used in the Old Testament that was written in Greek called the Septuagint. And they borrowed the Greek word doxa for the word shekinah that you have in the Old Testament. And that word in the Old Testament was the Shekinah glory of God. You remember that as Israel traveled there in the desert in the earlier time, right after their exodus, you had the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, and the glory of God was there. His presence was with them. And, oh, we don't have time to develop that. We're running out of time. But, but the Shekinah glory, that's the light, the splendor, the outward manifestation of God's presence. And Jesus is praying for that for them. And so during his incarnation, Jesus laid aside that outward expression of his glory, but it was inside of him. And here he comes to his father and he says, the hour has come. Glorify your son. And as I mentioned there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 and following, we read, since we have such a hope... We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what does this tell me about God? As we've looked at this briefly this morning. Before the foundation of the world, the only true God, Father, Son, and Spirit, He has had a plan. The triune God was intimately involved in creation. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God had a remedy for sin. 
the sacrifice of his own son, his only son, on your behalf and mine. As we look from Genesis to Revelation, we have what some have called the scarlet thread of redemption. And that scarlet thread runs all throughout the Bible. God, in his great mercy and goodness, made covenants and promises with his own, and he kept those promises and those covenants. And John, in his gospel, he takes us into this upper room, and in this chapter, he shows us the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son, and he shows us God's glory. He allows us to listen in to the Son's prayer of the Father, to the Father, and it, in it we find a, this unique description of the disciples that we're going to talk about in, the day, in this next uh, sermon. He talks about these disciples and all of us, that we who will believe through the word of his disciples, and he describes us to his Father as a gift. So as you reflect on this today and throughout this week, I encourage you to think about the Father's gift to his Son. You and me. And you and I getting to see his glory. So I want to leave you with these questions this morning. As a child of God by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, have you considered that you are the Father's gift to the Son? And you are the Son's gift back to the Father? And if you think about that, then how, how do you think about gifts? What do you think about gifts? If you're like some, you know, maybe you've had that experience at Christmas and mom got you a new pair of socks and you're thinking, okay, yeah, I needed a new pair of socks, but I don't even like the color. But you're a good kid and you don't tell them. They look at, they're looking at your face and thinking, mm, he didn't like them. <laughs> or maybe you've had the same experience with an adult. You know, the husband and the wife, and it's like, oh, I really didn't want that tie. I guess I got to wear that tie, don't I? <laughs> or whatever it may be. Uh, my in-laws had an interesting thing when I married into the family. I learned um, that my mother-in-law's solution for gift giving was to give you money, and you go out and buy whatever it is you want, and you wrap it up, especially at Christmas, and we put it under the tree and we all gather and we pull out our gifts and we open what we bought and wrapped and I surprise you with what you bought me. <laughs> and she got the biggest thrill and joy out of that because she felt like you weren't going to take it back. You didn't need to exchange the size. You got something you really wanted and she was thrilled. We did that all the years up until her death a few years ago. Those are just some pictures about gift giving but I want you to realize something. God the Father looked down on you and me and he said, I desire them for my son. Does that not just give you something on your arms to think? The Father said, I desire you for my son. And the son says, thank you, Father, for you have given them to me. And we're going to talk next week about how he protects them and watches over them. And he's going to use them and prepare them. And he's going to minister in and through them. And you and I are going to be his gift back to the Father. So the Father's chosen us. What does it mean to be chosen? How do you now understand the character of his glory? And what does it mean to you as God's child to have access by the Son into the very presence of this Father? Let us pray. Father, we've hardly touched on this. It is so rich and so deep. I pray that by your gracious Holy Spirit, you will minister to each of our hearts now. You will help us to reflect more on who you are.
and what you did from eternity past to bring your son to that hour and in joyful obedience he completed all that was required that he might ransom us for your glory speak to us in our heart of hearts we pray through this we ask in Jesus name amen